from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, where to find the next generation of sustainability talent? Is the political pushback on ESG for real? Getting serious about corporate climate strategies? And are carbon offsets a joke? It's no laughing matter this week on 350. It's September 2nd, 2022, the cusp of Labor Day weekend here in the United States. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. Heather Clancy is still off, so joining me again this week from Brooklyn, New York, is Green Biz Senior Analyst Dylan Siegler. Hello, Dylan. Hello again, Joel. We meet again, and I am particularly excited about the next two weeks where you and I are going to meet up in London and then Paris. Um, we have lots to do over there, and uh, including some R&R that we'll each be doing individually uh, with our respective spouses. And so that uh, should be nice. Um, but I'm looking forward to all that we get to do, the meetings we get to have, and the launch of Green Biz Executive Network in Europe. Really, really excited about G-Ben Europe. We are raring to go. I know our colleague, Lori Gustavus, is hard at work making sure that that's going to be an incredible meeting. She's got some really cool things planned, but um, I have to say I am mostly looking forward to the uh, the French version of hospitality when it comes to the dinner, um, which is going to be uh, multi-courses with wine pairings. <laughs> so, the, so the meeting goes from uh, Tuesday lunch to Wednesday lunch, and there's a nice, usually farm-to-table dinner. This has been the model for the Green Biz Executive Network for 15 years now. And um, and so, yeah, to do that in Paris, eh, that's a little little je ne sais quoi to the whole thing. We'll we'll see. Pardon my French, um, but um, yeah. And then you're 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 going to get some R and R there as well, I think. Yep, I got to spend a little bit of time in Paris over the weekend uh, leading up to that meeting, which is really exciting. In between, when we are in London doing those meetings of which you speak, and so we'll be excited to. Uh, offer a little bit of perspective on that on ne- next week's uh, 350. Yeah, and you and I will be co-hosting again from London Town. On location. <laughs> on location. Well, that's uh, coming up in a in the next two weeks. And uh, But let's go back to the past. We can review. So, Dylan, there's uh, uh, number one with a bullet in uh, last week's stories was one that you did uh, your first uh, for Green Biz. It was a great one titled, Where is the Next Generation of Sustainability Talent? I'll let you give the answer. Well, it turns out, Joel, that the consulting firms, the the big ones and our small kind of more boutique um firms are are the place where many young sustainability advocates are cutting their teeth. And um, 
So I, I came into that knowing that that's just a plain fact that is happening out in the market. That is where many sustainability grads out of MBA programs and out of sustainability focused undergrad programs, and also just coming out of wherever they're coming out of, um, whether it's uh, another field or whether it's just a, a general degree program, um, they're going to consulting firms and they're uh, in part going there because there is such a glut of jobs available that are well-paid and honestly offer some pretty good perks, including travel and access to a massive amount of resources. Um, so the plain fact is it's happening. The the uh, the young professionals are going to these firms, but I kind of wanted to find out what what does that mean? What what does that mean for this next generation? What are they learning? What are they maybe not learning that will impact what it is they're able to offer to our profession as we move forward into an increasingly urgent phase? Um, and I honestly, I'm going to go ahead and say, I wasn't super excited about the idea when I started the piece. I I I thought, uh oh, like this this kind of the the stereotype of uh, of a consultant is not the the person that I really want to inherit our field, the sort of regimented thinking and the process orientation and the lack of subject matter expertise. None of that sounded all that great to me. And I honestly came out of my reporting for that story pretty convinced that we're going to do okay. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic because it's a, it's a two-way street, for lack of a better term, which is that uh, on the one hand, a lot of corporate sustainability veterans are finding their way or being, I guess, lured to uh, the, 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 the large consulting firms, including, I'll say, uh, one of your former bosses who's now working at EY in, in, a, in a significant capacity. And so, so there's that. There's, there's the, the, as the demand for their services grows, the consulting firms are hiring away from, from the corporate sector. And at the same time, and this is largely the point, point of your article, is that the corporate sector is, is particularly at the, at the earlier stage, is going to the tapping into the, the consulting firms to find people who have a, a solid grounding. They've got the MBA, perhaps, or probably, but also, you know, they understand TCFD and CDP and GRI and, and GFANS and all of those different things that they need to understand. That's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, we've talked about the talent wars in the past. It sounds like in some ways, maybe this isn't a new front, but it's a growing one. I think you're right, Joel. And, you know, the fact is that the corporates have not actually been really that great at being a, a proving ground for young talent. I, you know, even while in-house jobs are becoming more plentiful as corporate sustainability becomes more um, important to corporations, the fact is folks want someone with five or eight years of experience to come in and hit the ground running. They don't have the, the time to actually bring them up from pups. And the consulting firms are able to onboard and, and actually do that um, puppy training pretty well, it turns out. And it's becoming this um, pretty great test bed for what we are going to need in the future. And no, it's not just about GFANS and TCFD and all of the alphabet soup. It's about understanding how to communicate the needs of um, you know, sustainability in business. And it's about really understanding how process is a part of our way forward. So I think 
rightfully, we've gotten a little bit of uh, pushback on social media about, well, we don't just want folks to come into these jobs with a bunch of alphabet soup in their backpacks. We we want them to understand how to do this work from a, a really visionary standpoint. And I think that's right. And I, I, I hope that what we communicated in that article is that uh, these young consultants are actually learning both. Yeah, and you, you talked about the fact that they do understand these things and, and people interpreted that to be, that's all that they're doing. And therefore, you know, companies are all about reporting and not actually about doing. And yeah, to your point, that's, we need both. Well, let's move over to another story that's uh, sort of a first cousin, maybe once removed from that, by uh, uh, Scott Nadler. Scott is somebody who, uh, he, you know, I go back to the early 90s, I think, when he was at Conrail uh, doing sustainability there and uh, has been a, a consultant uh, for, for a long time and is a fellow, senior fellow at the Global Environmental Management Institute, Jemmy. He wrote a piece called It's Time We All Get More Honest about climate strategies. And I, I love, love that he was calling out companies, not being dishonest in a fraudulent way, but but maybe being a little bit, um, you know, talking when they set net zero or carbon neutral strategies. He, he said that these two, for too many companies, these pledges have one or more honesty flaws that, that no one really knows uh, how, and therefore if the companies will actually meet those targets and fulfill those pledges, um, this, they're not even sure those terms are very well defined, what the assumptions are, uh, you know, which greenhouse gas emissions are even part of this. Uh, and he lists a number of, of, of other things. And, 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 and perhaps most important is how these climate pledges are often separated, independent, as he calls it, from the actual business goals and strategies of the company. Um, so I love that he's called out the, the, the honesty in, in a certain kind of way of corporate climate pledges. Uh, Dylan, what did you take away from this? I think that the time is right for Scott to have brought this to the fore right now. And as we're preparing for Green Biz 23 in February, um, February 14th through 16th, well 2023, um, <laughs> we're hearing a lot that it's the the so what of net zero goals. So what, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You made your goal. Great. We're, we're beyond that. No one's going to like slap you on the back for that anymore. What does it look like to get there? What's your plan? And are you actually, you know, are you actually embedded in the, the real work of your company or not? And it's going to, I think the wheat from the chaff is going to be pretty obvious pretty soon. We'll be, we'll be talking about that at the conference, but, um, Scott kind of gets into something that I I think is real, which is about talking with not at your um, stakeholders, for want of a better word. And so your leadership inside the company, you really want to make sure that you're involving them in that conversation and not simply reporting to them about what it is you think is important as a sustainability advocate. Uh, one of the most pivotal pieces of my upbringing as a sustainability advocate inside corporations was a meeting at um, a company I will not name at the moment, wherein we we walked the entire leadership team through two days of exercises to understand what's about to happen in the future. So how do you understand what scenarios are probable, not just related to climate change, although of course climate change is part of our future, um, in terms of geopolitical realities, in terms of the economy, in terms of migration patterns, in terms of all of the things that 
we as humans are going to be dealing with in the next 20 to 40 years. Where does our corporate strategy fit in there? And what kind of questions are we going to have to be looking at in order to get, in order to make the right goals? It was really transformational. And I think it's, it was a good example of what Scott is saying in this piece is like, you got to actually bring people in and have them come to those conclusions on their own, or you're, you're going to get nowhere. Yeah, I loved uh, one of his uh, bits of advice here, which is bring the people who make promises and the people who keep them into one conversation. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, isn't that what happens? And the answer obviously is no. There, A lot of these commitments are handed down from on high, uh, and maybe there's some buy-in at you know, just a notch or two below the C-suite, but, but ultimately it's the, it's the people on the front lines, in the, in the plants and warehouses, uh, and, and on the supply chain and all those who actually have to do these things. And, you know, I've always I've always said, you know, if you want to know where the waste is and the inefficiency is, you know, go down to the plant floor and ask. You know, those are the people who know what, you know, where what the trash is being thrown away, what is being bought but not used and how much, whether it's too much of something or which lights are being left on needlessly for, you know, at night and on weekends. I'm just in some ways, some of this advice, you know, here's another one, number three in the list, be honest, <laughs> you know, well, I don't think it's not it's honesty as opposed to lying, but it's about make sure that what you're saying publicly, uh, honestly and accurately reflects what you see as the potential opportunities, risk and implications for your companies. I would, I would call that it's an overused word, authentic, um, which is to, you know, not just wave your arms, but to actually say, you know, this is hard. This is what it's going to take. We may not make it, uh, but we're going to try and, and you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, yeah, some of this stuff is, is it's, it's very important. And I think Scott's piece is, is, is dead on here, but it's like, really? We're still talking about honesty and communications when we've got a planet that's just on fire it's so. a little bit deflating i will agree with you yeah. that we're still having this conversation and i think the conversation is unfortunately going to get even more pointed as companies become more risk averse in the face of increasing regulation of what's dis disclosed so yeah. um yeah, more to come on that. Well, speaking of deflating, uh, let's turn to uh, a response to a TV show that aired uh, about a week ago by John Oliver, who has this HBO show called Last Week Tonight. John Oliver, if you don't know, is a British comedian who made his uh, cut his teeth on the the, the, the Comedy Central show, The Daily Show. Um, very funny, talented man who uh, takes on a topic uh, could be it's usually a, a sort of a downer topic like criminal justice system or social equity or something that, that just and he points out the flaws. Well, on the show on uh, uh, I guess it was uh, this past Sunday, um, he took on uh, carbon credits, carbon offsets and uh, and just kind of ripped them apart and uh, sort of said, in effect, that they're pretty much all BS, and they're 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 it's a fraud, and and on and on, and and you know had some really uh, compelling and and at times funny, but pointedly funny examples of what he was talking about. But in the process, uh, I mean, it, it, the response on social media has been pretty uniform, which is both right on, John, and by the way, you really did a disservice here. 
because you threw out the proverbial baby with the proverbial bathwater. And um, it's basically saying that all carbon offsets and credits are bad. And, and so our colleagues, uh, Jim Giles, who chairs our Net Zero event, um, and, and, and Jesse Klein, our senior editor who covers uh, carbon, carbon offsets, wrote a piece uh, called Our Carbon Offsets, a joke, a response to comedian John Oliver. Um, what are your thoughts, Dylan? What did you take away here? I thought Jim and Jesse did a great job of mopping up and adding back in that hair splitting that's required to consider this type of complex issue. Comedy by, you know, somewhat by necessity doesn't allow for nuance. Um, It's just not really all that funny if you um, if you split the hairs in the moment. And so I see why they did that. I was reminded of the Pendulette takedown of recycling Mm. from years ago. And I think the lasting damage that that did to the 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 profile of recycling as um, something that could matter. And yes, recycling is flawed, um, as is the the world of carbon offsets. But that again, you don't want to you don't want to get rid of all of it just because some of it is a little bit effed up. And I have to say, um, I love how profane John Oliver is. I'm such a big fan of well used profanity, and he just does such a good job of it here. Um, that said, I loved that. Uh, Jim and Jesse were able to really um, give some detail to what John got wrong. And so we got Jim, Jesse, and John here. Everybody keeping track at home? Right. Uh, Joel is. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I, I think, yes, like we've got to watch out for greenwash, but we, you know, the the carbon market concept is not all the way broken. And so they mentioned transparency about offset use being a, an area where we really need to, to know more. They mentioned um, even, you know, the concept of penalties. So what happens if you misuse the offsets, you know, market and you're not actually communicating it correctly or, or doing it wrong? Right now, the risk to companies is purely reputational. And we don't we don't want that to be the only place that a company could pay for doing it wrong. Yeah, if that, I mean, it, it, to be reputational, you'd have to let it known that we didn't meet our carbon goals or didn't offset as much. And, and companies don't really talk about that. It may show up if for those who are diligent enough to read their sustainability report, but it, 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 they're not about to put out a press release saying, oops, we didn't, we didn't quite get there. Uh, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, the point they made is that, yeah, carbon – Carbon offsets deserve criticism, and thank you for for elevating and amplifying that. But uh, and this is a quote now from their piece: rather than leaving viewers feeling that carbon markets are completely broken, John Oliver could have pointed to recent initiatives designed to remedy the market's shortcomings. And then they talk about Jim and Jesse talk about some of those things. But yeah, this is is one of those things where comedy may serve the day where uh you know a thousand activists and critics and and political right-wing you know folks with agendas uh you know couldn't actually get the job done i'm grant harrison Green Business Director and Senior Analyst for Sustainable Finance and ESG. And I recently sat down for a chat with Allison Taylor, Executive Director at Ethical Systems and Adjunct Professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. 
We talked about how the anti-ESG movement has moved from rhetoric to reality, as it's now manifesting in investment products and policies. A number of red states have placed a ban on doing business with financial institutions that they deem to be discriminating against the fossil fuel industry, given their use of ESG analysis in investment decision-making. And a new firm looking to cash in on the anti-ESG wave, Strive Asset Management, has captured headlines with the launch of its first ETF, aptly named Drill, or D-R-L-L, designed to urge more drilling in the oil and gas sector and to, as the fund's fact sheet reads, quote, mandate companies to focus on profits over politics and ESG. I asked Allison where she thinks this trend will take us. It's a really good question. I read an article this morning about Stride that they're doing very well and they're setting up two more ETFs. So they've certainly had some success in raising money in the short term and energy prices are high, right? It's not a bad time to invest in traditional oil and gas if you don't care about these issues. I'm still very surprised that all these politicians in in places like Texas are pursuing this so aggressively, because I would imagine that separate from the rhetoric, they don't really want the Black Rocks and Fidelities pulling out of Texas because they can't operate there. I would also think that it's in the interest of most investors to play both ends against the middle. So have ESG offerings and have more pure play non-ESG offering. So all of that would suggest it's just a flash in the pan. Um, so I think we need to wait and see what happens in the midterms as to whether this uh, kind of continues to be pursued or it just melts away because it doesn't really make any sense. Yes. So, I, I mean, I kind of think anti-ESG is just normal investing. Um, yeah. And there's plenty of other options to do that. I don't know that you need a specific fund and a specific investment approach. I later asked Allison what she's making of the Inflation Reduction Act and how she feels about the argument that the rapid growth of ESG investing has served as a distraction from much needed government action to address climate change through fiscal solutions like a carbon tax. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the position that we need government intervention and we need government regulation and we can't rely on voluntary corporate action and we can't rely on NGOs monitoring that regulatory corporate action and we need regulation. So I think the Inflation Reduction Act is, is great news, not least because I've started to believe that it was impossible for anything to get passed ever again at the federal level in America. So it's good to it's good to learn that that there is, in fact, maybe some hope of getting something done. Having said all that, I think the Tarek fancy arguments um, and there are a lot of other people making these arguments a sort of ahistoric and obvious. I I think that um, most people that have been working in sustainability for any length of time understand that the rise of sustainability in ESG is itself a consequence of political dysfunction and not being able to get anything done via regulation. So that's one thing. Um, another thing that the rise of sustainability is a consequence of is the rise of globalization and companies uh, moving into developing countries with lower environmental and social standards so that they can make more money. And so national regulation is not the solution to those problems. So I don't think you get to pop up in 2020 with very little background in the industry and say, wow, no one ever noticed that the real problem here is regulation. Mm. Um, so I, I find all that a little bit uh, disingenuous at, at best. Um, 
But then, you know, when we talk about sustainability and ESG and a lot of these concepts, I do think they lack proper consideration of what the role of business is and the role of government. That's the big strength of Milton Friedman. He, he laid that out very, very carefully. It's the big strength of human rights frameworks, which actually do consider and delineate the role of the government versus the role of business in a way that I think sustainability and ESG doesn't because mm. it tries to treat this as an objective set of performance metrics. But if we're saying that a business should take social responsibility over issues like inequality and democracy, I don't think you can just throw that out there with no limits. I don't think that you um, you do anything other than open up a lot of very, very uh, difficult questions with those kind of statements. So at the end of the day, we are having a conversation about what is the role of business? What is the role of government? What is the role of civil society? What is the role of politics? Um, and I don't know that anybody gets anywhere by denying uh, that that's the conversation that we actually need to be having. Lastly, we talked about the academic foundation for the business case for sustainability and what she thinks about the legacy of and current state of that research. There's huge amounts of research showing that employees uh, that are more motivated and believe in the values of the firm are more likely to stay or more likely to perform better. There's a lot of work on questions of reputational risk and consumer appeal. There's huge amounts of work. Um, but clearly, I think um, anyone that's ever spent any time in a business will know that also doing the right thing very often costs more and takes longer. And there isn't an immediate business case. So I think um, if we're going to get a notch more specific and start to think about what it would really take to build in and incentivize prioritizing these issues inside companies. I think we've got to get a lot clearer about what we're doing because it's about innovation, it's about long-term survival, it's, um, you know, there is a business case, we're doing this for some commercial benefit, we're trying to pivot from fossil fuel to electric cars, we're trying to pivot from traditional mining to green copper, whatever it might be. There's a difference between that and then um, issues that we want to put in place because they are ethical commitments because they're intrinsic values. So something like diversity and inclusion, something like support for human rights, just meeting ethical standards. And I think by lumping all these various issues together into one bucket stops us being able to manage them well and particularly stops us being able to design good incentives. I've written a piece quite recently on ESG incentives and what I see is companies herding together to tick the box for investors and putting in place incentives that are very clearly not going to work and are not going to drive the intended outcomes. Yes. So by being dishonest about there being a, an equal level business case for everything often couched in the language of reputational risk, we sort of stymie efforts to actually implement these things. You've just heard from Allison Taylor, Executive Director at Ethical Systems and Adjunct Professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips, criticisms, you name it. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. 
As we said, Dylan and I will be back next week from London uh, with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. Thank you.